if you have your Bibles, please open to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, as we're going to spend three weeks, we, last week, this week, and next week, looking at Jesus' high priestly prayer um, with his disciples before his imminent arrest, trial, and execution at the cross. Um, according to many scholars, this is the most important chapter in all of John. Now, in our I Am series, we've looked at all of Jesus' statements being, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate, I am the door, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the resurrection and the life. All of those statements across John, and that's kind of led us here to John 17. Um, and many scholars, as I've said, they, they call this the holy of holies of the sacred scriptures, that this might be one of the most important texts in all of the New Testament, as this teaches us so much about who Jesus is especially as it reveals his heart, as he's pleading with the Father, preparing himself and his disciples for what's about to happen. In a few short hours, Jesus will give his life for the life of the world. Now, if you're not sure what that really means, and you've never thought much about the cross, Jesus is going to the cross to bear the eternal wrath of God for sin in our place. Like this is the most important event in the entire cosmos. This is the only hope that any of us have. Jesus will give his life for our life. The Father will treat him as our sins deserve. He who knew no sin will be treated as though he had committed every sin so that his righteousness can be accounted to us. With the weight of all of that looming over Jesus, in John 17, we find him praying for what is most important for him and for us. And so with Jesus focused on the fulfillment of his mission... With the cross in clear view, he wants to leave us with a vision of his heart and our calling. Now, let's look at this text, as I said last week, through the clear and focused eyes of Jesus. And what I hope you will see is that this, this prayer beautifully summarizes Jesus' entire mission. It shows us his heart, his life, and his mission. There are three sections to this prayer we looked at the first section last week, verses 1 through 5, where Jesus prays for himself. He prays for himself as he prepares for what's in front of him. And he's going to go to the garden right after this and do the same thing. Lord, if this cup can pass for me, let it pass for me. But right now, he's, he's prayed for himself, and now he's going to pray for his disciples. And then next week, we're going to see him praying for the future church. So let's look at John 17. I'm going to read verses 16 through 19. This is what Jesus says as he switches in his prayer from himself to his disciples. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you've given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, 
but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. And I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled, speaking of Judas. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. This, this, this basic section of scripture falls into two sections, two basic categories. And so let's look at it in two different categories, and then I'll try to help us understand why this matters so deeply for us. So first, the first section here is describing the people for whom Christ prays. The people for whom Christ prays. The basic question I have in verses 6 through 10 is this. Who is Jesus praying for? Or for those that like the grammar to be right, for whom is Jesus praying? Okay, who are those that Jesus is thinking about during this time? And that is a critical question because Jesus is praying for a specific group of people. He is praying for those that are in relationship with him and the Father. And Jesus describes them. He lists here five characteristics that describe those that are in relationship with him and the Father. So if you have a pen, I'd love for you to just circle or underline or pay attention to these five descriptions of those that Jesus is praying for. Look at first in verse 6. Jesus prays first for those that the Father has given the Son. Do you see that at the end of verse 6? He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you have given them to me. So Jesus is praying for those that the Father has given him. If you're a believer, you are a father-given gift to the Son. That's who you are. You, you are. you are the gift the Father has given to the Son. That's the first description. Second, Jesus prays for those whom the Son has revealed the Father. Okay, look at the beginning of verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to this people. I have revealed you, the Father, to this group of people. That's what the mission of the Son has been all throughout John. I'm going to reveal the Father to them. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus prays for those that he has revealed the Father. Third, Jesus prays for those that have received and kept his word. Do you see that in verses 6 through 8? He says at the end of verse 6, they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they received them. So Jesus came with a gospel message from the Father. They've heard the words. 
They've received these words and they've kept these words. Those are the ones that Jesus is praying for. Then fourthly, Jesus prays for those that believe the Father has sent him. Look there at the end of verse 8. He says, they have come to know in truth, this group of people have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. So they believe by faith that Jesus is the sent of the Father, the the Son who has been sent for the life of the world, the, the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. They believe this about Jesus, that he is the unique Son of God and Messiah who has come from the Father on a mission. And then fifthly and finally, he prays for those that live to glorify the Son. Look at the end of verse 10. Notice how Jesus describes them at the end of verse 10. He says, all mine are yours. Remember, the Father gives them to the Son, and now Jesus says they belong to you too. Jesus says, all mine are yours, Father, and yours are mine, and what? I am glorified in them. It is those that are glorifying the Son of God. Now, let me, take, let me summarize that for you. When you take all five of these descriptions together, this is a basic summary of what Jesus has said all throughout the Gospel of John. The Father has given Jesus' people out of the world. He's reached into the world and snatched them out of death. They were the fathers, and the Father gives them to the Son. The Son reveals the Father to them, and those that come to the Son also come to the Father. Those who have seen the Son have also seen the Father. Those that receive the gospel and receive Christ by faith are those who find eternal life. No one can snatch them out of Jesus' hands. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hands. And Jesus has just said, right just a few verses earlier, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now, So when you ask the question, for whom is Jesus praying? That question must be answered this way. Jesus is praying for those that are his and belong to him. That's who Jesus is praying for. That's why this prayer is called the high priestly prayer. Because Jesus, who is the great high priest, is interceding for his people. That's who Jesus is interceding for. That is the job of the high priest. And let me remind you that Jesus is the eternal high priest. And right now, at this very moment, he is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he is interceding on behalf of his saints before the Father at this very moment. He is continually praying for his people. In fact, Hebrews says this is the reason he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God by him. It is because he intercedes for his people. Now, think about this. That right here also should stand out to us as a warning, should it not? Should this not stand out as a warning? Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Jesus specifically says in verse 9, I am not praying for the world. That is as clear as it can be said. I am not praying for the world. Jesus wants to be crystal clear That he is praying for those that have received him by faith and are committed to following him. Now, 
This is only one of Jesus' many prayers. I'm not saying he didn't pray for the world in other places. But at this moment, at this time in his ministry, he is being very clear that I am praying specifically for my disciples. Now that's challenging. I understand that when he says, I'm not praying for the world, I'm not praying for those that the Father has not given to me, that is challenging. That is mysterious. That is humbling, but nonetheless true. To read the Bible clearly in context is to take Jesus at his word. Okay? Jesus said back in John 13, what? He said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. So I want you to hear the warning. But I also want you to hear an invitation. All throughout John, Jesus invites all people to hear his voice. To come to him by faith and to find life in his name. So here's the question. Was Jesus praying for you at this very moment? I'm asking this as a serious question. Are you a believer? Do these five descriptions describe you? Was Jesus at this moment, right before he goes to the cross, was he thinking about you? And the only way to be able to answer yes to that question is if you are a believer. If you are not a believer, then the converse is also true. He's not praying for you. You need to hear the invitation to come to Jesus. Because the only reason he can save us is because he intercedes for us. Because he goes to the cross for his people. You need to connect those in your mind. So, does this describe you in verses 6 through 10? If not, then do what these verses say. Believe on Christ, receive his word, call on him by faith, and determine to live for his glory and not your own. So that's the first section. Jesus is praying for his disciples. Now notice the second. The purposes for which Christ prays. So you have the people for whom Christ prays, and now you have the purposes for which Christ prays as you look at verses 11 through 19. So now that we know who Christ is praying for, now we can look and ask, well, what exactly, what are Jesus' petitions? What are the purposes for which he goes to the Father and asks the Father to act on behalf of those that are his? So this is what Jesus, if you think about it that way, this is what Jesus ultimately wants for you. If you're a disciple, before Jesus goes to the cross as the high priest in human flesh, he's saying, this is what ultimately I want for you. This is what I want for you. And there are three main purposes here. So write these three down. Three main purposes. First, Jesus prays that his disciples will be kept and protected. That's what Jesus prays for. That's the first purpose. That you will be kept and protected. Now he does this a couple of ways. Now, he does it first in verses 11 and 12 by asking, he says, Father, Holy Father, I ask that you would keep them in your name. He says it twice. Keep them in your name. I have kept them in your name while I walked among them. Now, Holy Father, you keep them in your name. Now, the name of God in the Old Testament represents the very nature and character of God. That's what it means. The name of God represents the very nature and character of God. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 20, and we sing this in songs, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. But what do we trust? The name of the Lord our God. That's who we trust. The name of the Lord our God. All of who God is for all of us. Or as Proverbs 18.10 says, 
The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. So we run into the name of God. We fall on the name of God because the name of God is his nature and character before us. This, is bas- this basically means we are trusting in the very character and nature of God. So we're basically saying, Jesus is saying here that his father would do what he does. Do what you are before your people. Keep them in your name. Next, in verse 14, Jesus prays that they would be protected in a hostile world. Right? Look there in verse 14, that, they, they'd got, that, that the, the world hates them, despises them, and he says that God, he asked the Father to protect them in the midst of a hostile world. Now notice there, Jesus doesn't pretend that this world is going to be love and puppies. It's not. It's not. I hope, I hope you know as your pastor, I've never tried to lie to you to say, if you follow Jesus, everything's going to be great. It's not. Eternally, yes, everything will be great. But in this world, you will have trouble. Horrible, horrible trouble brokenness abounding brokenness in every aspect of our lives from our bodies to our relationships to our children to our jobs to our government to everything trouble Jesus tells us in fact here plainly that the world will hate us if you walk with Jesus they will persecute you if they hated the master they will hate the servants and because of this truth hear me because of this truth As a believer, you will face two great temptations. One temptation is isolationism. What's that? What that means is that we would withdraw from the world to avoid any hostility. Right? Well, I'm just going to withdraw and go circle the wagons and go hide in the backwoods at a camp somewhere so that the world can't hate me. All right? Jesus addresses that, by the way, In verse 15, he says, Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. That's not what Jesus wants for you. He doesn't want isolation from the world. So we do not have the option of withdrawing and circling the wagons and disengaging from the world. Hear me. Christianity does not have an escapist theology or mission. We do not have an escapist theology or mission. This is where monasteries in the Middle Ages were absolutely got, absolutely got it wrong. This is where the ancient desert fathers who went out into the desert to hide from the world got it wrong. And other Christian groups still today have given in to this temptation and have missed Jesus' command. So we don't have an option to isolate ourselves from the world. That's the first temptation. The second temptation is just as dangerous, and that is assimilation. That you would assimilate into the world and you would would become more like them to avoid the hostility, right? So instead of withdrawing, I'm just going to really look like them so they don't think I'm any different. I'm going to follow what the world says. I'm going to be worldly. Now listen, you can't be salt and light if you ain't salty. You can't be salt and light if you don't dispel darkness, You know what light does? It has one really good job. Anytime you turn on a light, you know what runs away from it? Darkness. You can't assimilate into the world, right? Why? And just think about that. Would the world be hostile to you if you operated under the same principles by which the world operated? Of course not. You look just like them. You're a partner. So, 
There are many in the Western church who have fallen into this temptation to avoid hostility by simply adopting the world's philosophies and ethics. And let me remind you what John the Apostle says, who also recorded this prayer in 1 John 2. John says, do not love the world. He says, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John's clear, right? Jesus is clear. You can't love the world and love the Father at the same time. You can't serve two masters. You can't isolate. You can't assimilate. Paul says it this way in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So again, don't withdraw, don't assimilate. Well, Jacob, what do we do? Engage in Christ's mission. Do what Jesus has called you to do. Okay, and we'll get to that in the rest of the text. But now look at what Jesus also prays about us being protected in verse 15. He prays that we would be protected from the evil one. Do you see that at the end of verse 15? Father, I pray that you would keep them from the evil one. That's how we're kept and protected, that we would be protected from the evil one. Now here, Jesus acknowledges a stark and sobering truth about the spiritual battle and spiritual war that he's sending each of his disciples into. It's real, people. It is real. The world that we live in is fallen. It is embattled. It is a spiritual world. Everything about it is material and spiritual. Hear me. All that we see is not all that there is to be seen. In this world, there is an ongoing spiritual battle between the forces of light and darkness, good and evil. And you would be misinformed if you did not think so because Jesus doesn't pray for us to be protected from something that doesn't exist. Why would Jesus pray for us to be protected from something that's not real? Well, I pray every night that God would protect my kids from the green Martian man on the moon. Why? Evil is real. Satan is real. And Jesus here tells us that he prays that the Father would keep us from it. Listen, Paul says in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That means everywhere. The spiritual forces of evil everywhere. everywhere. So hear me. Satan is real. His forces, his influence, and his power is real. Listen, the, the book of Hebrews says, and I might go off on a crazy tangent here. I'm going to try to stop myself here, others. The, the author of Hebrews says that many of us have entertained angels unawares, right? That many of us have entertained angels unawares, and we go, man, that's an awesome thought. Well, you can, I guarantee you that if you've entertained angels unawares, you've entertained the dark forces of evil unawares as well. I guarantee it. All right? Billy Sunday, when the famous old evangelist said, I know the devil is real because I've done business with him. And if all of us were honest, we could say we have too. All right? Peter warns us in 1 Peter 5 to be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary the devil prowls around like what? A roaring lion seeking what? 
whom he may devour. He will eat you. He will chew you up, swallow you whole, kill, steal, and destroy. Peter goes on to say, resist him, stand firm in your faith. And by the way, this is why when we say the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer, what do we pray? Lead us not into temptation, but what? Deliver us from evil because it's real. Second, Jesus not only prays that we would be kept and protected, but Jesus prays that his disciples will be unified and filled with joy. Unified and filled with joy. Look at verses 11 and 13. Jesus says there, he says, Keep them in your name that they may be one even as we are one. That we would be unified of being in essence just like the Father and the Son are unified. Listen, anyone who's been a Christian for a single day, just one day, knows that division and schism are a possibility. Amen? Some of us in this room have been divided amongst each other. Some of us in this room have tried to be schismatic apart from each other. Some of us have not sought to maintain the the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Because we're sinful, fallen human beings. We remain sinners, though forgiven sinners, Jesus here prays that we would be unified. We would be one in life, purpose, and mission. And guys, that requires the work of God's Spirit among us. The question is, well, how can we all be unified together? Well, let me give you an illustration from A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, he, he uses this illustration of a pianos. Pianos being tuned to one tuning fork. He says this, He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? By the way, we have to do that. We might not do that well, but we try to do that in here on Sunday mornings, get all of our instruments tuned together. He says, they are of one accord by by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. He says this, So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to suddenly think about unity and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship with one another. So, if you want unity here, then all of us don't tune our hearts to each other, do we? Where do we tune our hearts? To Jesus. If all of us tune our hearts to Jesus, then I guarantee you that we'll be in harmony with each other. Let's all tune our hearts to Jesus. And being tuned to Jesus, we will find unity of purpose and fellowship. And the outcome of Jesus' unity is Jesus' joy. Look at verse 13. He says, he asked their father that his joy would be fulfilled in his disciples. His joy. Now take a note there, by the way. Jesus is not talking about happiness. He's talking about joy. Happiness depends on our circumstances. But joy, his very joy, is what flows in us and through us by his spirit. It's not our joy, it's his joy. His joy. You need to pray not that I would have joy, but that I would have Jesus' joy. That I would have the kind of joy-filled obedience of Jesus. The joy-filled submission of Jesus to the Father. 
an indestructible joy even in the midst of a hostile world with a dangerous, by the way, life-stealing, joy-killing enemy. Isn't it funny that Jesus says protect us from the evil one and that you would have joy. Even though that guy's trying to kill you, you're going to have joy. I think one of the most consistent and mind-blowing concepts of the New Testament is that joy and suffering are not mutually exclusive. Now I want you to go home and think about that the rest of the day. One of the basic concepts of the New Testament is that suffering and joy are not mutually exclusive. That if you're suffering, you can't have joy. Or that if you have joy, you won't suffer. They go together. Jesus says that we would have joy even in the midst of suffering. Right? Third and finally, notice what Jesus prays for. So he prays that we would be, that we would be unified and filled with joy. And then he prays that we would be sanctified and sent on his mission. Look there, look now at verses 17 through 19. I'm going to read these again. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they may also be sanctified in truth. Earlier, we talked about the temptation of disciples to isolate themselves or to assimilate into the world. And here Jesus reminds us why you can't do that. Why not? Because you must engage the world through the mission of Jesus. Jesus is praying for his disciples to continue his mission. He's about to leave them, fill them with the Spirit, and commission them to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the world. And in order for us to do that, Jesus says, in order for them to do that, they must be sanctified by his word. Sanctified means to be set apart. But not simply set apart as in separated from or set to the side no 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 sanctified means set apart for a particular purpose and use think about reach my my dad working on cars in the shop and he set apart a wrench over here he set it apart not just so that it would be different from all the other wrenches he set it apart because that's what i needed to do this job that's what sanctified means it means it means being set apart For Christ's mission. Again, set apart by the word. And this, again, is the gospel message that Jesus has been preaching. Did you know the gospel is a missionary word? It's a transformative word. It doesn't simply shape our thinking or our ethics. It shapes the very purpose for which we live. Look at verse 18, circle it, underline it, live by it. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now listen, we'll wrap this up for us, put a nice bow on it. To follow Jesus is to follow him on his mission. And that's why he prays for his disciples. That they would be sanctified and set apart on the very mission for which he was sent. That they would take the love of Christ and the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now as I close... Do not think for a second that you can separate these three purposes for which Christ prays for you. You're like, I like the first two. I really like being protected and kept. That sounds really good to me. Jesus, thank you for that. Or, I really like this joy thing, Jesus. That sounds awesome. I really, really like this unified thing, Jesus. I wish we would all just get along a lot better. Amen. You can't separate them, right? You can't do it. 
These things cannot be separated from being sanctified and sent on Christ's mission. We are to be, we are to be kept and protected and unified and joy-filled as we seek to fulfill the mission for which Christ has sent us. So this week, when you pray this week for Jesus' protection over your family, when you pray, when you pray this week that you would be kept and you would be joy-filled, and you better pray that you would be living on Jesus' mission. Don't think you're going to get the first two without the third. Don't believe that lie. So here's my last thing. When you pray, learn to pray like Jesus. Learn to pray like Jesus. And I'll say to those that don't know Jesus, you don't get Jesus' forgiveness. You don't get his life or his protection, or his joy, or his sanctification, or his mission, or him praying for you, unless you come to him. So come to Jesus by faith this morning. Father, would you pray, would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would bless this time together, bless your word, and Lord Jesus, I pray that we would hear your voice, follow you, and that Father, we would take these very words that you've given us as this prayer and we would pray them and understand that every time we serve, every time we love, every time we experience suffering with joy, every time we seek unity, every time we focus our eyes on Jesus, that that is an answer to this very prayer through the Father. That the Father is still answering this prayer of the Son today. So Father, bless our time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.